Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, where each episode we bring you a fresh and insightful interview with one of the film industry's top directors, conducted by one of their peers. Remember to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're enjoying The Director's Cut, please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes or like us on SoundCloud. We love hearing your feedback. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Dee Reese's new drama, Mudbound. The film tells the epic story of two families, one black and one white, who are forced to confront the realities of life in the American South. Though pitted against one another by a ruthless social hierarchy and bound together by the shared farmland of the Mississippi Delta, the families' lives are changed when sons from both families forge an uneasy friendship over their shared experiences during World War II. In addition to Mudbound, Ms. Reese's directorial credits include the feature film Pariah, the documentary Eventual Salvation, episodes of the series Empire and Philip K. Dick's Electric Dreams, and a segment of the miniseries When We Rise. She was nominated for a Primetime Emmy and won the DGA Award for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Movies for Television and Miniseries for her 2015 film, Bessie. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in New York, Ms. Rees spoke with director Mira Nair about filming Mudbound. During their conversation, Ms. Rees discusses the elements of the source material she wanted to highlight and expand in the film, how she drew from her own family history to make the setting more specific, and her particular rehearsal process when working with actors. It's, um, D is half, it means sister in my language, in Hindi. So she's a half sister, kind of a full sister. So D, tell me how you got this musical name. Let's start with that. So it's funny, so, so my full name is DeAndrea, and so my, my aunties nicknamed me Dee. So my mom, of course, hated it, because being a middle-class, you know, achievement-oriented woman, she felt like nicknames were the bane of all kind of, like, success. <laughs> and so, but, but my aunts named me this, and then in film school, I shortened it to, to Dee because it felt like a brand, it felt punchy, it felt like it's the thing I've been called in my life, and so it's perfect for the screen. So. It looks good in lights, Dee. It does, it looks good. It's like the, yeah. the ease, it's and, like, and you know. It deserves to be in lights for this accomplished and ambitious film. Thank you so much for Mudbound. Uh, I was Mudbound, I was slightly spellbound, I was uh, Marvelbound, and I wanted to ask you, since we are directors, and uh, it's such a lovely and not so often that one gets to talk to a fellow director, um, you know, what I found the great challenge in the film, and I think you accomplished it, was the interweaving and the juxtaposition and interweaving, more importantly, of the black family and the white family, to put it boldly. Um, and uh, I wanted to know how your work process was about that, because surely it must have been the foundation of the book or, or the, and the screenplay. And did the dance keep going? in the conception, of course, and then what happened in the editing? I kind of want it all. 
Absolutely, yeah. So the script first came to me in 2015. So the first draft was by a writer named Virgil Williams, and it's based on a book of the same title by Hillary Jordan. And so the multiple points of view was a conceit of the book, you know, so it's not a new conceit. Um, Isabel Wilkerson does it in nonfiction with Warmth with Her Sons, and um, Hillary did it with this book. And the thing I was interested in were these kind of unreliable narrators. And so I looked at this, the first version of the script, and so Cassian always was the producer, and I said, you know, he said, it's, it's yours if you want it. And so I read the script, and I read the book, and I said, okay, I'll do it if I can rewrite it. And, and my focus in rewriting was to make it a story about two families. So the Jackson family wasn't just there to serve the McCallum family. And so in my writing of it, I actually wrote a lot of original material for the Jackson family. So for instance, the first scene where we meet them where Ronzo's going off to war, I remember daddy borrowed Mr. So-and-so's truck. Like I wrote that scene, it doesn't exist in the book because it's important to establish Ronzo not just as a son of Happen Florence, but as a son of the community. So this is why it matters that he leaves. This is why his absence is so felt. And this is why Hap kind of clings to him when he returns. And then also even Mary's monologue, I held his heartbeat in my hand, he was warm and alive. And the turning of the back, like that comes from my family history. Like my grandmother was super superstitious about watching people leave. And so like then I injected that into the story. And even moments, like small moments, like the two children riding on the cotton sacks. So my grandmother was born in Faraday, Louisiana in 1925. And she would tell me stories about she and her little brother would ride on her mother's cotton sack. So then that becomes a shot in the film. Beautiful and shot. thank you, yeah. yeah. And then consequently, like my grandmother said, she would never pick cotton. She wanted to be a domestic worker. She wanted to be a stenographer. So I made the little girl in the film want to be a stenographer. <laughs> because it seems like such an unlikely thing to want to be. And it just speaks to the imagination, you know, that, that's necessary for survival, like to be something that's not even visible to you. And um, there are many other moments, like um, Hap and Florence slow dancing, Ronzel giving his mother the candy bar. All these were like original beats of humanity that I built into it, and Hap's monologue, What Good is a Deed. I wrote that because it's important to give Hap context with this land, like so that both he and Henry have this sense of disinheritance. You know, Hap didn't just come with the cabin. He has ambition, he has ideas. And even the, like the dinner table scene, like where the family, where Hap is on the, has a parcel map on the wall, and he's planning on how to buy more land. Um, so all those things I inject to the story and kind of investigate my own family history to try to bring to it. But that's what, in my experience, you know, makes the most actually universal of stories when, when the details are so specific and from a very, in a sense, local place, a place you know. And uh, it was so rich in that respect. But I'm curious still about how much you played mm -hmm. with the interweaving mm -hmm. through the editing. I'm sure it must have been endless versions, right? But how much you conceived of it in the shooting? Because when I when I made The Namesake, you know, which is a, a story by Jhumpa Lahiri mm -hmm. set in Calcutta and New York. Well, I said it in New York, but it was in Cambridge, mm -hmm. Massachusetts. Um, it can be a real easy cliche, you know, to juxtapose the heat and dust of one country and the light of one country with, with the coldness of this one. Mm -hmm. But it was when I came upon the bridges, our, our bridges in New York, the mm -hmm. Queensboro, the Hooghly in Calcutta, when I understood that actually filming the bridges, that would give me this, you know, sense of exile mm -hmm. between, like a seesaw that I wanted yeah. and not be didactic purely. Exactly. And that's what I want to understand from you in the creation and the interweaving of the stories. Mm -hmm. Tell me that dance. It's it's a beautiful one and you've achieved it. Uh, although it must have been a real challenge because 45 minutes into the story you're meeting another character. You know, that's, that's right. not normal. 
no, normal. <laughs> yeah, no, no, exactly. Like, like that's the risk with this kind of material. Or, or the risks are many, right? So the first risk is that in trying to give everyone a voice, you can end up hearing no one's voice and just becomes this kind of lyrical mush. And then the other risk is that it turns into like this kind of polemic, kind of sentimental thing. And I, you know, I. I got around that by working thematically. And so like my big theme was like the battle at home versus the battle abroad and how the battle at home is bloodier. And so the characters are thematically linked. And so Jamie and Ronzel, you know, instead of being about black and white, this is about these guys are linked by trauma, by the sense of PTSD. And Happ and Henry, they're linked instead of just being like owner, you know, um, worker, it's like they're linked by disinheritance. So they, they have equal claim in the two women. It's not just motherhood, it's like this economic disempowerment. Like their husbands are trying to tell them what to do and both wives are disobedient and kind of go, like going around them. And so in the edit process, it, it, was, it, was, it, it was a rewriting of the script for sure and um, Mako Kamitsuna was my editor she edited Pariah and I knew she'd be great for this and in the edit of it we really leaned into that theme so we intercut like Ronzel's tank battle with Hat breaking his leg so it keeps father and son psychically linked and we intercut um, Jamie's B-25 dog fight with the girls with whooping cough so again like each of these characters are kind of fighting on their own front lines and it keeps them connected even when they're not physically present in the same space in the story and then also like there were several things we did so for example um, the scene where Jamie is with the prostitute, you know, that was originally designed for the end of the story to show that Jamie's still haunted, he's still broken. But Mako was like, why don't we put this in the center of the film? And so we created this, this triptych where we see Henry reject Laura, so you have sexual frustration, and then we see Jamie with this prostitute, so it's like this kind of sexual emptiness, you know, he's like self-medicating. And then the third piece of the triptych is Ronzel and Riesel, it's like true love. And by making that, giving it this triangle in the middle, it gives the Ronzel-Riesel beat more weight, and you really feel the, that Ronzel really loves this woman, and this is the true thing, and he's gotta come back to this thing. And, um, and there's another moment, actually, where we change in the edit where instead of when Jamie and Laura kind of trespass, that was initially supposed to be designed, you know, after Pappy's, actually before Pappy says, I know about you two, and then that was gonna be kind of like a discovery. And Mako thought, you know, like, what if we have Pappy say, I know about you two, and then have them do it anyway? And I thought, this makes no sense. Why would they do it anyway? And so she's like, let's just try it. And we did it, and it made it so much more subversive. And then, like, that kiss becomes charged with, like, this kind of, um, this kind of, um, impudence, it's like a reverence, it's like it becomes like a defiance, you know, it's not just a simple sweet romance and for me as a director I'm just interested in like avoiding polemic completely like because that's not interesting and Life, me, life is much stranger and exactly. more powerful than how it, we can make that kind of comfortable fiction, you know, exactly, because yeah. it's constantly inexplicable what happens. Exactly, yeah, and, and, and even in the treatment of like the characters, like I didn't want this like surface kind of treatment of race, like I wanted to explore whiteness as currency. So it's all the McCallans have it, they just spend it differently. So Pappy flaunts his, he'll smack you in the face with it, he'll call you a name, he'll make you out the back door. And Henry may not call you a name, but he will expect you to get up, you know, in your illness and attend to commerce, you know, get up on your broken leg and come handle this, you know. And then Laura barters with hers in that she understands that when she asks Florence to do something, it's not completely an ask. Florence is kind of, you know, bidden to do it, but she, she'll, she'll exchange something in return. She'll give a small thing in return. And then finally, Jamie tries to pretend that he doesn't have it. He tries to burn his, which is also problematic because it endangers his friend. So by giving it this kind of dense layering of character, like no one's, you know, quite right or quite wrong. It's like they're, they're all shades participating like in a, in a, in a, in a system, so. 
No one definitely yeah. feels that. So tell me how you gather your ins essential creative team and mm -hmm. in the preparation for it, even though I know you said a lot mm -hmm. comes from family in mm -hmm. some ways. Mm -hmm. How do you prepare, you know, like I prepare to so much with my team beforehand so that when mm -hmm. we are shooting, there's not much to talk about right. except to receive inspiration and do it. Mm -hmm. So how do you work in that way with this? How did you work with mm -hmm. preparing, preparing the look mm -hmm. and the creative team? Yeah. So with the department heads, you know, I prepare like visually and musically. So like the, the, the Dr. C.J. Johnson, the kind of long meter hymns, I knew I wanted to be a part of the film, the Odetta. And so I, I would kind of feed like my department heads music and like this is music from the world of not knowing particular songs, but this is kind of like the world of the film. And then visually, like my references tend to come from more um, from like visual artists, like less other films. So like Whitfield Lavelle's contemporary artist who paints on wood. He's from Louisiana and like Moe's T is an artist from like, you know, um, a long time ago who painted with kind of found objects. And um, also Mary Frank, who's a sculptor who like does these kind of site specific, yeah, I love Mary's work. She does these site specific sculptures and also does like a lot of like silhouette work where she shoots, you know, figures and nature. And like, depending where the camera is, like she really can like change the scale of like what, you know, she changes like the perception of what you're looking at. And then um, of course, I think people know Mary's husband, Robert Frank, who's known for the Americans. But um, so like most of my references are, are like visual. And so I kind of start with that and just, just on my wall and giving to people, inviting people in. And Rachel Morrison was my cinematographer who's amazing. And her references were like Dorothea Lang and like the old WPA like photos. And so those old farm projects, so like those faces. And so just kind of like paint the wall with those faces. Each department head has them so they can get in, immersed and like the feel and sound of the world. And then with the actors, I like to work in a more one-on-one -on -one intimate workshop way. So I don't do traditional readings or rehearsals. Like I'm more interested in getting the core of each relationship. So for example, with Florence and Laura, the core of that relationship for me was power. So I had Mary J. Blige and Carrie Mulligan like face off in my office and do a simple repetition about power. Like you have the power. No, you have the power. So giving that to each other back and forth. And then for the, um, for Garrett Hedlund, who plays Jamie, and Jason Clark, and Jonathan Banks, who plays Pappy. I had them come to my office and do a father-son mosh pit, because that interaction was all about admiration, all about respect. And this is a father who just wants his, son to, his sons to love him. You know, not, I didn't want to play him as the bigot. Like, you just, you just want your sons to love you. And for the sons, you just want your fathers to like approve of you. And so I had the sons like say things that they loved about their father, and had the fathers say something good about the sons, so they get that one kind of kernel. And then that's the thing they're always trying to get back to in every scene. And then um, for, and then just in terms of like language, like, you know, I wanted the word nigger to be a noun in this film. Like it needed to wash over you. It couldn't be a hiccup, a hitch, a stutter. This is a word that would have been said a thousand times a day. And so to prepare Rob Morgan, I had Rob Morgan who plays Hap and then Jason Clark who plays Henry face off in my office and over and over again, you know, have Jason say, you're a good Rob Morgan, thank you, sir. You're a good nigger. Thank you, sir. Over and over and over again, just pacing it up, pacing it up. So you could see Rob rippling and, you know, flexing. You see Jason, you know, uncomfortable. So I just like to go quickly to the discomfort, work one-on-one, -on -one, and then on set, like I'm on the set. I'm not behind a monitor. I'm not in a cooling tent. We're literally on set together. And for this film, we shot in actual sharecroppers' cabins out on a sugar plantation, you know. So it was very intimate and tight. And when I'm giving direction, I'm talking to each actor. I'm not shouting across the room so no one feels 
put on the spot and it allows for a surprise and the actors have to keep listening because I'll add something or change something so they really have to pay attention to their partners. Do you block uh, with the actors in the morning and then sort of conceive of the shot with the cinematographer or is it has it been planned way in advance and blocked through? No, so it's been planned in advance. I do like overheads and like a shot list. So me and Rachel, part of the prep, we're shot listing throughout. So by the time we start shooting, every single scene has been shot listed. And the movement as well. And the movement, yeah. And like I'll like, you know, arrive on set even an hour before a call. And like I'll change shots, I'll delete things. But, you know, going in, there's like literally an Excel spreadsheet with like, you know, the angles. And as I'm in the room and sitting before anyone gets there, I kind of like just sit in each of the camera positions and like think about it and walk through it. And I kind of show it to the so actors. So you tell the actors where to sit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and then I'll I'll, I'll like show so it to them. Forget about motivation. Yeah, well, I'll just, show just it to them, and if something feels awkward or strange, yeah. we'll play with it. And I'm like, well, I still need you to land in this area, you know. So it's a, we'll talk about and, it. But yeah, and I was curious how you felt about handheld because there's little of it, right, in this in Mudbound. Yeah, but so for this film, yeah, I wanted to be very sparing with it. And like the only time we really have handheld is this is the second time in the barn between Jamie and Ronzel when they're really intimate with each other. We do these kind of backy yeah. French overs, and that's the only moment. And it's like deliberately so the camera language becomes warm and familiar. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it is for so for example with blocking with that Jamie Ronzel relationship. So I'm very aware of touch, you know. So it's very clear, like when you first meet, you never touch each other, you know. Ronzel extends his hand, Jamie doesn't take his hand, Ronzel extends the hat, so they touch through the hat, you know, and then they get in the truck. Don't look at each other, you know, like don't, it's like you pick a few moments to throw looks, but they're not really ever looking at each other, making eye contact. And then, you know, they touch through the bottle, you know, they're always touching through other objects. And then, you know, the first time they're in the barn. In India, you know, they didn't allow kissing on in, in, in movies until the 70s or 80s. So the heroine would kiss the Coca-Cola bottle and pass it over. Oh, really? And then oh, the wow. hero would kiss the other side. Wow. And then you'd cut to a calendar with a white baby smiling at you. Yeah. <laughs> the so, details of our uh, obfuscation. Yeah. So see, I didn't even know when I was doing that subconsciously. But yeah, and then it's like even like in the barn, you know, like, you know, the blocking, like Ronzel stays on his feet. You don't trust this guy yet. Then by the end of the scene, he comes closer. And then the next time in the barn, they're sitting side by side and we get the warm kind of baggy handheld stuff. So yeah. And now you told me this remarkable thing that you had only 29 days to shoot this film. Yeah, it was insane. That's just... Yeah, we were supposed to have more. That's just amazing. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> yeah. I know, be careful of that reputation because I have it too. I know, I know. Yeah. I, feel like, yeah, I feel like my next budget just got slashed. <laughs> like, oh, she'll get it. But yeah, we were supposed to have longer, but ironically, we got rained out two days. You know, so we, we, we you, you know, mostly we, we create our own rain with water trucks, rain towers, rain wands. But there are two days where it's absolutely like lightning and storming. You can't shoot because it's just like not, not safe. And so we end up with 26 days in Louisiana on a sugar plantation. And then we had two days in Budapest, Hungary. And that's where we shot the tank battles and the European village right. scenes. And then we had one day in Long Island at a World War II museum. And we shot an actual B-25 plane and rolled the plane out on a runway and had a green and kind of danced the green around the plane for a Jamie's bomber sequence. So yeah, it was very efficiently shot. It was brutal six, seven page days. It was brutal, yeah. <laughs> That's really commendable, and that really means, of course, that you have to know exactly what you're doing way, way exactly. in advance. And I've always thought we were better anyway, right? Exactly, <laughs> and so that's why it's like, sit there. <laughs> There's no conversation, sit there, yeah. Um, you know, I'm, like, like you, I really appreciated and really felt the music in your mm -hmm. film, because mm -hmm. it was very personal, almost, mm -hmm. and, and evocative, and mm -hmm. used also not 
sparingly, you know, mm -hmm. to, to serve something mm -hmm. and not always there. And so I would love to know how you work with music. Do you work with the same composer? Mm -hmm. Do you find this person? Um, tell me about that relationship because I feel in filmmaking that's one of the great joys and, mm -hmm. and it's amazing to find someone that you can further your idea of sound and music with. It is, yes. So my composer's name is Tamara Kali, and this is her first film score. But um, I've worked with her on everything I've done. Like in Pariah, she's a woman who's on stage with a guitar, and she's known for her punk kind of, you know, heritage. And then in Bessie, I got to do a song for Bessie, and I tried to bully her and to be the composer on that. But it was studio, so it's harder to like, you know, have that fight. And so because it was independent, I was able to just have her do it. And like Tamara Kali's the composer. That's it. No conversations. And the producers didn't even hear the score until like right before Sundance. And it was funny because I was like, you know, one of the producers kind of timidly called and said, hey, we just kind of maybe like to hear some things. And I was like, why do they want to hear something? Why don't they, you know, my partner's like, D, like they, they got to be able to hear the score. Like, you know, it's going to screen in like two days. And so, but no, Tamara, like the direction I gave her is very just like, you know, impressionistic. It was just kind of like ancestors, you know. And I think I might have said dark strings, like that's it. And I knew that Tamara had this deep musical lexicon and would bring a lot of her classical training to it. And, you know, we wanted to subvert expectations. Like people expect you know, you hear 40s Mississippi, you think banjo, you think string, you think guitar, you think blues. And I wanted to go exactly opposite that and really have the score feel like it's resonating from the landscape, from the trees. It kind of gets at the indifference of nature. So it's not that nature is working against you, but nature is indifferent to you. And like her, her score summons all those things. There's always that kind of blood and bones in the ground. We always feel it there underneath. So this film was made independently and then went to Sundance without a buyer? Absolutely, yes. So yeah. we screened, so we opened night Sundance. We're all excited, standing ovation. I think, great, this film will sell in 45 minutes and we can all go home. And so like the night passes and my agent's telling me to keep calm. He's like, oh, babe, don't worry, you know. <laughs> They're just gonna buy the comedies first. So day two passed. He's like, don't worry, babe, it's so good. They don't know what to offer it. <laughs> and then, so he's keeping, he's giving me like the, the uh, blue pill, like keeping me calm. So then like day three comes and there's no buyer. He's like, okay, this is weird. So like not a single studio bid on this film or wanted to have it or, you know, they were afraid of it. And then Ted Sarandos was like, wait a minute, is nobody buying this? Like, I'll buy it. <laughs> and, and thank God he did because he wanted a distributor that believes in a film as visionary. So if not for Netflix, this film wouldn't be released at all, wouldn't be seen. Extraordinary, hey? That, I loved that story. So sometimes you hear these stories and they, this one is so deserving and, uh, and so important uh, to, to see and to enjoy because it has an epic kind of quality in its, in its intimacy as well. And uh, I was very happy to hear that because you're really going to get a fantastic distribution now. And, and everyone can get it at any moment. Absolutely, yeah. We we just released on the 17th in almost 200 countries. So like, the thing I'm loving is like a simultaneous global audience. And prior to this moment, my experience with Netflix had been through with my first film, Pariah. And so Pariah was at Sundance 2011, got picked up by Focus Features, had a very limited platform release. But most of the people who've seen Pariah have only seen it on Netflix. You know, have only ever seen it. So I saw you know this platform give my film longevity. And so like Netflix feels like a place for auteurs. It's a place for material with long longevity. It's not a three-week run it's not a six-week run it's an infinite run so as an artist like you know you can't what hope more for more yeah. exactly yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so, so the question is about how the um i shot ronzel like the treatment of that sequence when he's lynched and then you know walks back into the 
film. So basically, so my conception of the barn scene was a passion of the Christ, and so I wanted to shoot Ronzel as a Christ figure and Jamie as Mary Magdalene slash Judas weeping at the feet. And so that was the idea of the scene. So I wanted Ronzel high, Jamie low, and forced to watch. And so, um, and, and you know, it started with like finding the best location. So, you know, we were scouting places and the line producer's like, oh, this place is fine. It's right on the same place as the plantation, but it's like this dilapidated falling down barn that didn't have levels. And I fought, it's like, no, it has to have levels because we have to have height because my intention was to create this theater of violence. You know, it literally needed to feel like a theater. And so we, it starts, you know, at the location level. So we found this wonderful two level location that was worth the extra 45 minute drive so that our production designer, David Bamba, could build that kind of balcony level and we could put bodies up there and get those extreme high angles and extreme low angles and like the torches could be like have the fire, you know, kind of all around. And so, and then, you know, in terms of like the shooting day itself, it was, I treated it like a closed set, you know, so no one on the set that doesn't need to be there. So it's just the background actors, just Ronzel. And with Jason Mitchell, we talked about the scene being realistic and I talked to him about being completely vulnerable, basically, you know, naked in the scene and you know it was a big risk and it was scary we talked about this is uh, stripping of the dignity this would be this exact this is exactly how it'd be done and you know we've seen like lynching imagery and so we didn't want to pull any punches and so he was game to do that and we eased into it and even with the background artists the people we had mostly stunt guys playing clan guys so it's very choreographed so they could go very hard and be safe so it's like the more choreographed it is the more stunt guys you have the harder you can go because you know everyone knows exactly like what they're doing so it's like stunt on stunt action, stunt on actor. And um, and yeah, we had two days to shoot it, like of our time. Like I wanted to spend time. So one day we spent with just like arriving, you know, and, and like the confrontation. And then like the other day, like the, the Jacksons like retrieving the body and, and returning. And then consequently, the next part of that was meant to feel like Easter morning. So with Mary washing the body and we don't know. And then we repeat that monologue I wrote up front. I held his heartbeat in my hand. He was warm and alive. And so that, that brought that concept back in. No, so the book ends completely differently. Like Ronzel stays, and that, that I have to give credit to Virgil Williams, like the first writer. That was his ending, and he felt it was important for this man to go back for his son to not leave that kid behind. And so I love that ending because it's like not expected and it's a different twist. And it also gets at this idea of generations and continuity. And that kid is not going to have an easy life at all. You know, and that woman is going to be like damaged goods. You know, <laughs> you know by the by European standards. But it was important to show that this kid is going to have a different life at least, just as we've already witnessed Ronzel have a different life than Hap has had. So I wanted to keep the ending because I thought it gives some measure of hope and just makes it, even though Ronzel has been muted, he's not going to be silenced. And we know that he and that child are going to have a relationship. So it's $10 million. Yeah. <laughs> so was that the, the ultimate challenge was to do such an epic thing um, in that money, I was supposed, but what was, so I know what that feels like sometimes, mm -hmm. yeah. and I mean, often actually, and yeah. so which part did you actually enjoy most? Yeah, I so say before the difficult part. Yeah, and so just inside on the budget, you know, because I cast the way I cast, right, I'm not interested in like, you know, names on a poster, I'm interested in like who's best for the role, so because I always insist on casting this particular way, you know, my budget, you know, my budget got slashed. It was supposed to be twice that. It was like, okay, well, if this is your cast, then this is your budget, you know? So it's that whole foreign sales value, arbitrary game. And so, you know, then as a director, as an artist, you're making a choice. Like, do you not do the movie? Or do you, or do you, you know, 
take it by the horns and, and just make it the best that you can be. And because I had so many women behind the camera, I was confident we could get it done with Rachel Morrison as my DP, with Mako as my editor, with, um, with um, Angie Wells who did makeup. And because I had all these women behind me, I knew I could, I could, we could make something out of nothing and we could do it well, so yeah. That's great. Yes. Yeah, so I think, so, so during the day, I think we, I think the thing that helped us is that we all stayed in it. So because we wanted these 360 views, the production and the logistics of, and the logistics of production had, had to be very far away. They couldn't be like in the sight line. And so for that reason, we stayed on set, you know? And so like, you know, actors weren't going back and forth to their trailers. You know, I wasn't bouncing in and out. We literally were in these sharecroppers cabins and Rachel had to cut holes in the ceiling to get lights in and pump lights in from, from, from the outside. But we all stayed on set, you know, they stayed in costume. Like there was no relief other than like lunch break, you know? And I feel like that actually, um, comes through on the screen and it forms a material like the sweat, you know, everything is like very, you know, intentional. So we're all suffering and sweating and stinking together. And then at the end of the day, you know, then it's like a two hour drive back to New Orleans. And so we just all be dead asleep on the drive. That's why there's a ridiculous amount of drivers because, you know, there'd be like one set of drivers to drive you in that morning, like another set of drivers like drive you out because it was like, it was grueling. It was like two hours just to get to work. And then you have this very compressed amount of time to work and then two hours to get out of it. So it was, it was brutal, yeah. Can I just ask quickly about editing? How many people did you have to show it to in the course of uh, cutting the film? Mm -hmm. uh, it was an independent production. Mm -hmm. You're one of the producers, or mm -hmm. you're, isn't it? So how was that, the note process? Was that a, the yeah. usual studio thing or something yeah. different? So the beauty of it being independent was that I, was I, I had final cut, and so that was great. So it was, um, it was just, um, so Macro, which is Charles King's company, and then Cassian Elways was one of the producers, and like Armory. And, you know, I don't know, nothing's more freeing than knowing that, like, a suggestion is just a suggestion. And so we actually cut this down, like we had like at least like 10 minutes more material. So this is like the short version of what it was. And so for me and Mako, it was just about telling the best possible story and keeping the characters connected. And you know, people are afraid of voiceover and the great risk with voiceover is that you end up being kind of disconnected. But you know, because of Rachel's camera language, we were very sub sub subjective and actually like, like all the ADR I recorded on set. So while the actors are still in costume, still standing in the room, give the performance now versus in like a sound booth, you know, six months later and you're sterile and you have a goji berry shake in your hands. So it was just like, you know, I think all those things allowed us to really have maximum flexibility in the edit. And so we actually didn't cut in a traditional post house, we just like rented like an artist loft upstate New York. And so it's me, Mako, and my dog. And so it's just the two of us in a room. And so it's great to be cut in a large room because then we could get far from the screen and like watch it from across the room and then get close to the screen and watch it. And so it's me and Mako and like a lamp from Walmart, you know, watching it and then going across the room and watching it and coming back close and watching it. Then you know, playing with the dog and, you know, just uh, keeping that distance. And for me, I don't watch dailies during the shoot because I don't want to, I, I want to forget the footage almost because I want to have a true, honest reaction when I see it again and not be attached to something because of how long it took to get it or because of this little small thing that you don't even like notice anymore. So I really like try to protect that first reading. So when I come to the edit room, I'm kind of like washed clean of like dailies and what was there and I'm rediscovering the, the, the material in this way so it can be relentless and you know, but because of the structure, but any structure really, but this one being so interestingly mm -hmm. complex, mm -hmm. um, it helps to show people, 
right, mm-hmm. in the process of making it. At least for me, not that I show a lot, mm-hmm. but I like I like previews. I like mm-hmm. to look at things through the eyes of you know just anybody off a street. Mm-hmm. So did you have to do that because it is a balancing act that you yeah. made? Uh, I would think that you would want to, right, in the course of it, or you really made it. No, I'm really so for me. Room. I wanted like a small group, so I think I only showed it. So we showed it once to producers, got the notes about the length, and so we like tinkered with it and actually like, totally like re- re- restructured it. And then the second time I showed it, it was like just my agent, the composer, and um, yeah, just my agent and the composer and the producers. I like, got like a second round, but yeah, I don't want to. I don't. I'm just very afraid of like filmmaking by committee or filmmaking by audience because everyone say cut out the barn scene. It's uncomfortable, you know. So <laughs> I, I just like <laughs> I, I just like. And coming from corporate America, like to me, like focus groups is like the bane of creativity, and you know, so yeah, I specifically like to try to avoid that. But people I respect, like for, for Bessie, I wanted you to come watch it. I wanted like you know some other directors I respect to come watch it. So it's like other directors I respect, I invite into the process, but I don't want like an audience of people to kind of judge it. Yeah. Well done, well done. Really th- want to thank you, Dee, for this wonderful film and uh, to share it with us in such th- of so much openness with which you have. And uh, it's available to be seen and uh, yes. really wish you luck on this tamasha, as we call it, the award circuit that <laughs> will, I hope, befall upon you. Thank you. Uh, and uh, thank you so much, everyone. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more from director Mira Nair, check out episode 31, which features Ms. Nair discussing her film, Queen of Katwe, with director Ava DuVernay. You can find past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. Stay tuned for more episodes, including Alexander Payne's Downsizing, Paul Thomas Anderson's Phantom Thread, and James Franco's The Disaster Artist. And click subscribe so you won't miss an episode. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please like, share, and leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.